But um, maybe before we get started, if oh, we would have uh, pray for it. Oops. Samuel Miller uh, mainly, and 
hard to derive a definition of orthodoxy for all of these different people. Um, the main thing it is, is what, what Dave was saying, the main idea is right teaching or straight teaching. Uh, it's for two purposes that you have this right or straight teaching. It's for building up and edifying, which is its primary purpose from within the Church of God, and it, its exterior purpose is for pulling down false teaching. So the idea is it's right teaching for building up and for pulling down. It's both positive as well as polemic. It's for stating what you believe as well as arguing for what you believe. Okay. Uh, secondly, and very important to include in any definition of orthodoxy is uh, a link with the past. It, it, or, the word orthodoxy indicates a sense of continuity with past ages. Now, what Brian was saying is very correct. With who? with the Orthodox Jews, with the Orthodox Catholics. No, in our definition, only with valid teaching from the past. Very critical to stop and think, who has God given the Spirit to? Who are the teaching elders that God has given the Spirit to to instruct us? Let's go to them as well. That's Orthodoxy. Of course, Orthodoxy in indicates uh, right teaching in regards to the Scripture. A common error uh, that I hear of amongst people is I only use my Bible, not the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. It's a very pious type of fraud. It sounds like you're a real blessing of a Christian uh, and that you're really putting down those lowly thoughts of the common man. Uh, a better approach and a more important way to state it, a more mature way in my understanding of it, is to say I use both my Bible and the valid teaching of the past regarding my Bible. I will go to the teaching elders of the past as readily as I will go to the teaching elders of the present to get my doctrine and to get my understanding straight. So that's orthodoxy. The idea that the scripture, when somebody comes up to you and says, I believe my Bible, like we could all walk into the room today and all holding up our Bible saying, I believe my Bible, that's my confession. The Bible is a statement of God's mind. It's not a statement of our mind. It's a statement of God's mind. We have to go one step further to say what we believe about the Bible. We say, here's what my mind understands God's mind to be saying. Okay, that's to do with orthodoxy. So we go to past ages and we go to scripture. We go to the right teaching. Now, orthodoxy implies a strong relationship between systematic theology and church confession. Okay? Uh, confessions give us a grasp, a grasp of how doctrinal uh, thought develops through the years. If you look at a confession, it's wrong to think of your confession of faith as a contemporary type of thing. It's a historical document for example, the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in the 1640s, has very clear history surrounding it. When you're looking at it to interpret it orthodoxly, you're, you're supposed to look at the historical surroundings and say, I'm going to try to interpret this document as they meant it in the time that they were speak, speaking to. Okay? We must develop our confessions to make them more contemporary. 
soon as we get the ability. And so right now, we're dealing with, it sort of gives us a picture. Take an example of uh, Luther. Luther in the Augsburg Confession. The Roman Catholics coming against him very hard. He was required to state what he believed. He writes the Augsburg Confession and a couple of catechisms. Along comes Calvin. Along comes the Helvetic Confession. Zwingli wrote a confession. And then Westminster wrote a confession. All of these things give us an idea of how the Christian Church has developed from the thought, a thought over the years. Now, there's another term that's important, and that's a creed. Who knows what a creed is and how it differs from a confession? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm afraid it's short. Uh, it's intended to be more concise. It's uh, sometimes what's considered to be the fundamentals or the bare minimal of, uh, or the essence of a faith. Comes from the Latin word credo, meaning I believe. Mm-hmm. And so it's a statement of belief, uh, such as the Apostles' Creed, which some might say if you can't subscribe to this, then it's you're not even Christian. Right. Now, it's interesting to note that there's certain epochs or, or periods in history where, uh, especially when the Christianity was just born in the early centuries, second, third, fourth century, that was the time of creed, a very simple, straightforward, biblical, you know, real easy type, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. The Council of Chalcedon expanded on the Nicene Creed a little bit. But the heresies of the day didn't require that they had to make big documents. After that, the Dark Ages set in, for the most part, and the Roman Catholic Church became very powerful. Creeds died, so did confessions. All that was important to the churches was who had the ecclesiastical power, who was in charge. Finally, when the Protestants got back in order, they started to develop exploded views of these creeds. Just prior to that, there was something called Scholasticism. Scholasticism is they started looking at the idea of how do I define these old apostles' creeds, this Nicene creed? What did they actually mean by their words? What were they actually trying to teach us? From scholasticism developed the idea of confession. The scholastics became so educated that they said, hey, wait a minute, now we're going to make better statements of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can picture, you can picture this creedal period in church history and then the Dark Ages, and the 16th century comes along, and it's, you know you have some scholasticism forming, definitions of the old doctrine, and finally the Confessions, the one we're going to study, Westminster. What period would you say that we're in now? Would, would you say we're in a creed-making period, a scholastic period, or a confessional period? Yeah. I think uh, the modern anthropological view 
is that uh, man is divided up into like the spiritual, the mental, and, and the physical. And a lot of people are moving inwardly and becoming pietistic, rejecting the need for creed, saying that it has to be more with just a spiritual relationship with God, not with head knowledge. Uh, we, of course, would say Christ is Lord over our, our mind, our spirit, our body, over everything. But we're not like uh, the Romanists who would say that uh, our relationship consists in external ritual, or like the pietists who say it consists merely with just a spiritual relationship. But we also incorporate the mental aspects and say sound doctrine is also important to help the relationship with God. Okay, now, in terms of the, the idea of the question was more... Are we in a period where you think it's right for us to write new confessions or add new things to the confessions? I think it's you know. Okay. The reason why is I think at this point, uh, much at the uh, end of our last sermon, where uh, uh, I think we're in a period of history where a lot of Christians are uh, so much uh, we agree together about what the Bible teaches. My hope is 
that as we come to define this more clearly and pass this on to our children, perhaps our children or our children's children will have the ability to uh, add to the confession in a godly way. I don't think we're there yet. There certainly is a need for it. There's a lot of contemporary issues out there that need to be addressed, but it's not easy to add to a confession properly. I was just going to offer an observation, and that is that the only real alternative to what you suggested is this obscuration of where you can just obscure the relevance for the pertinency of all of these issues and return to a minimalism in the form of just like the Apostles' Creed. Right. Or uh, like what the, what the Presbyterian Church in Canada is now is to replace the Westminster Confession of Faith with something they call the Living Faith, which is just a little pamphlet of about 10 pages, which summarizes
I can give them to you off the top of my head. I have been looking at them all. Uh, if we have time. Now we're gonna, I want to look. The purpose of the Bible study uh, and this whole thing is we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures. Because I want the ideas. I don't want this to come from me as much as the proof that the scripture teaches us and that we see this clearly from God's own word. Uh, this is just a preamble, by the way. It's taking a little bit longer, but it's good. Uh, encourage participation for sure uh, I want to talk briefly now after summarizing what orthodoxy is keeping that in mind what is the use of a confession what do you see as the use of your confession but one use is maintaining the purity of the church so that the teaching really always to help accountable to a visible unchanging standard okay anybody else great Okay, that's right. Third, I mean, whereby someone may uh, come to understand what a group of Christians believe and teach if they're defining do we want to join up with these people or do I want to become a member or something like that. You know? All right. I've, I've grouped it according to which Bannerman. I like the way Bannerman put it together. Three simple points, easy to remember that way. And that will be the basis that we'll work on tonight. Three simple ideas. Teaching the truth. Holding the truth. Witnessing and protesting in behalf of the truth. That more or less summarizes all the functions of a confession. Now, there'll be a lot of subsystems within those. They're very broad. But if you teach, you use it to teach, to hold on to the truth, and to witness and protest for the truth. So let's look at teaching the truth first. Um, very important point in terms of uh, a confession of faith is important for the teaching and the regulation of all church members, all church members. But I believe the most important people that regulate are also the potentially uh, the greatest blessing to a church, but also the greatest danger to a church. And to see who we're talking about, obviously it's the ministry of the church it's the elders and the deacons of the church they can wreck a church in no time and we'll see this from the scripture turn to Galatians somebody uh, I'm, rather than me read all the scriptures um, let's just go around How, is that okay is anybody uncomfortable reading you don't have to if you don't want to okay uh, Lyndon Galatians 1 uh, verses 6 through 9 Linda uh, 2 John 7 through 11 and uh, Brian 2 Peter 2 uh, 1 and 2 so we'll start with Galatians 1 6 through 9 this is I marvel that you are so soon to you something that calls you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel which is not another but there be some that trouble you and they pervert the gospel of Christ as though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you unto you than, than that which we have preached unto you let it be accepted as we have as we said before so say I now again if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that we have received let it be accursed okay what was the scripture uh 2nd John 7 through 11 
For many diseases that may be in the world, to confess not to Jesus Christ is coming in flesh. There is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, he hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. There comes any unto you and bring not this doctrine, but he who not into your house, neither be from God's seed. Okay, before we go on to the next one, let's take a look at those two scriptures we just talked about. Paul obviously is teaching that there's some people who claim to be preaching the gospel that are perverting it so badly that you're supposed to call them cursed. How do you tell that somebody's preaching it so badly? This man will definitely walk into your church and say, I believe the Bible. God's inspired word will come into the pulpit and pervert the gospel so badly that you're supposed to call them a curse by God, or God's command. Now here we have, uh, in the second epistle of John, he said, Whosoever transgresses and abided, abides not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. Again, it's a curse. He that abideth not in the doctrine of Christ he, uh, or he that uh, does abide in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Again, the warning, if there's coming anybody among you that does not bring the true doctrine of Christ, don't let them in, don't let them teach you, don't let them teach your family, don't let them teach in your church. How can you do this without a confession? How can you do this except you sit down amongst yourselves and agree on what you believe? You have to have some stated form of agreement or else you can't stop this man. Now, you might be able to take certain individual scriptures, but if you don't all agree on what that scripture means, you're never going to get any of this job done yet. Well, even in Revelation 2, verse 1, it indicates that this was in fact going on because there were false apostles. Um, and uh, it says here, the angel of the church is that scripture, verse 1. Exactly. And so there's a testing that has to go on. Let's read Second uh, Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. But there are false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Okay. Again, we have preachers coming in, claiming to be teachers of the truth, bringing in a damnable heresy. This is a type of heresy that is so serious that it keeps people out of the faith. Example, the morning, the Jehovah Witness, the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, their heresies are too serious to be overlooked. We ought not to let them into it. Not only on top of that, it says, and many shall follow their pernicious ways, and by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. The Gentiles look on, they think these people are gospel preachers. Right? And they speak evil of all Christians because of a Jim and Tammy Baker and all the different scandals that go on by these people in their pernicious way. 
And so, again, here's the importance of using a confession to control the ministry. If I bump my head in the morning and I show up on Sunday to start teaching all sorts of damnable heresies, you can use your confession to stop me. And that's important. It's important to protect you. It's also important to protect the ministry of the church. Now, these people, these people, it's very interesting historically to look at the people who use confessions. And it's even more interesting, I think, to find out who doesn't use confessions. Historically, the people that don't use confessions are people who are considered heretics. They don't want their beliefs defined and summarized. And so they want to keep it all in hiding. Take uh, Probably the biggest group is the Anabaptists. Okay, now I'm not talking about Reformed Baptists, I'm talking about the Anabaptists and Calvin times, for example. Well, they didn't make a confession, though. They made one later, but it's, it's not defined. It's not the, like, we're talking about the Savoy Declaration here. This isn't the same group. Okay? It's a little bit different uh, situation. Basically, heretics don't want to explain themselves. Because if they have to, then everybody gets their Bible vote and checks out what they're doing and say, hey, wait a minute, where do you get this from? And so the people who won't make confessions in our contemporary society, strike one, be really suspicious of these people. Not not only for, they're liars, for one. There's no such thing that Dave was saying. It's impossible not to have a confession. It's just simply dishonest to not admit what it is and write it down. There's one called the Free Will Baptist Confession that was done in the 1600s. That's how they end Yeah, I'm not familiar with the specifics of it. Generally, they're very short and not... not I mean, we're not talking like a Westminster confession of any degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, certainly not every doctor who subscribes to it either. So I mean, it's small groups that were interested. Okay. Now, so what we face in the scriptures we just looked at is we have to protect ourselves against evil ministers. We also have to use our confession to protect good ministers. Somebody, if somebody's preaching a really good sermon, somebody in the in the queue um, is slightly off the deep end, or is a heretic themselves, and comes up and starts condemning your minister for a really bad reason. Can we tolerate that? We think that's okay, or can we say no? Our confession allows our minister to preach those truths. We've agreed that this is what he can say. This is correct. You be quiet. You're out of order. And we can protect our ministers in the same way as they protect us from bad ministers. So there's a very great uh, protection feature involved. Yes. Um, 
Well, I, I would agree in this much, is that there's no doubt that inasmuch as the Bible can be abused and anything can be taught from any sort of heresy, so could a confession be just as much abused. What we're talking about more is how to properly use it uh, and to use it for the ends that it was designed for the purpose of honest declaration of what we believe. Now, let's look at the second point because we've got to move on as we're about halfway through and I want to try to keep it rolling so we can get to the conclusion. Uh, a good confession is necessary, necessary to the instruction of family. When the assembly put together the larger and shorter catechism, the larger catechism was designed to instruct ignorant adults. The shorter catechism designed to instruct ignorant children. Not ignorant in the derisive sense, ignorant in lack of knowledge. So uh, the purposes of using these confessions in your family devotion, I believe it's necessary to orderly teaching, to teach your children these things. Now, uh, Let's look up a couple of scriptures right away. I believe it could be argued and argued strong that the catechisms of today will form the confessions of tomorrow. I believe that's a true statement. What you teach your children today, they will be the confession makers of tomorrow. They will be the people in church orders of tomorrow. And so decide very clearly about which order you want to instruct them in. Let's look up some scriptures. Uh, uh, Clearly, Dave, First uh, Peter three seven, Mark, uh, Philippians one twenty seven, uh, Jimmy, uh, Ephesians four twenty and twenty one. Let's start with First Peter three seven. Again, the topic is a good confession is necessary to the instruction of them. All right. Peter three seven. Mm-hmm. Likewise, the husband dwell with them according to knowledge giving honor unto the wife and unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. All right. Well, with them according to knowledge, the husband. Now, what? how do you interpret that? What do you think it means? Nope, that was... Uh, that, First Peter 3.7. Yours is Philippians 1.27. Um, before we go on, though, a very important point. Husbands dwell with them according to knowledge. What kind of knowledge are we talking about here? Doctrinal knowledge, confessional type of stuff, yeah. Dwell with them. That's how a husband is directly instructed here about how to dwell with his wife. It's not optional. It's it's a commandment of God. Dwell with them according to knowledge. Be discussing your confession together because it's very important that your household agrees on what you believe. Very, very important. Got to get down to it and get agreement. Okay? Philippians 1.27. This scripture is anticipating the next point, but we'll read it anyway. Right. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or am absent, I will hear your errors, so you can't pass the one spirit, with one mind, striving together, for the sake of the gospel. Okay, we'll comment on that. Uh, we'll read Ephesians uh, 4.20.21. Okay, uh, we, we learn here about learning Christ, learning the truth in Christ. Philippians 1.27, uh, very critical. Let's just go over that one more time. 
Philippians 1.27, it says, uh, stand fast in one spirit with one mind. Now, is that a reasonable goal for us? Is that a godly thing to do for our church? We're going to stand fast, one spirit and one mind. How do you stand fast in one spirit and one mind? How do you even know which direction to go in unless you have some sort of a written standard that indicates, over here, guys, this is our standard of agreement. You don't even know which direction to move. One spirit and one mind need something to move towards. Yes? I think there is a... Um Okay, now, well, it can be abused again. I agree with you. There's no doubt that this this type of a system can be. Okay, I agree. Yeah. So it depends whether uh, he's familiar in light or in darkness, or out of blind ignorance, or out of studied acceptance of what is being taught. I think that's the difference here. What I'm driving at here is the. Uh, well, let's read uh, again uh, in the First Corinthians one ten. I think the, the scripture sums it up uh, very well. First Corinthians one ten. Okay, very straightforward scripture. Speaking the same thing, uh, very critical to us. As, and to me, the confession is our speaking of the same thing. It's a declaration to all those around us. We're speaking the same thing. This is what we believe. Okay? It's a function and a use of the confession. It's also speaking the same thing within your household. As for me and my host, we will serve the Lord, Joshua says, right? As the same way as somebody says, well, what order is your house in? We hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith in our household. We, we have a um, family worship according to Westminster Confession of Faith. Now they'll think, oh, well, you sure hold that Confession of Faith up there high. But no... We're proving it from the Bible here. We're proving why we have a confession of faith. That the Bible tells us to speak the same thing. Again, some guy comes up and says, Yep, I believe the Bible. And the wife comes up, Yep, me too. And they could speak opposite things and different. Please turn the cassette over at this point and continue listening on side two. Thank you. All right. Now, what does this do for a family? We'll be right to that in a second. When you're the head of a household, your children know that you put this confession of faith as an important thing, as a clear direction as to where the family is going. It's going to bring certainty to the doubting minds. It's going to bring a lot of stability to your household. Very, very important thing to do. And clear unity and direction. That's why I put such a force on it, and, and Linda and myself put such a force on it in the church. There's clearly which direction we're going. Nobody has to guess about what we're doing. Okay, a common, a common direction, agreed on principles, settled in doctrine, a great bond formed amongst the church, a true peace, a very difficult peace to break up. This peace is called the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, uh, 1 through 6. Linden Gorham. 
I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, bethink you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all loneliness and weakness, long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all and all right, there's one body, one spirit. Okay, we're keeping the unity in the spirit in the bond of peace. Where does peace come from, according to the Bible? James chapter 3, pure, first pure, then peaceable, it says. Wisdom that comes from above is first pure, then peaceable. Where does peace come from? That's right. Okay. So we, we have this unity, this bond of peace, this speaking of the same mind. The text itself tells us where the peace comes from. So let's put it in the negative. Can you see peace coming from a very lovey-dovey type of spirit that says, okay, now nah, let's not argue about baptism. Let's forget about that. It's too divisive. Let's not talk about the person of God that much. It's too divisive. Okay? We have in our text, the bond of our peace is called right here our hope, the hope of our calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Not allowing 21 different types of baptism. One baptism is our unity. One Lord, which Lord? Specific Lord, specific kind of God. We have to define these terms to have unity. Anybody that thinks they can find peace in latitude is a liar. They're totally divisive right at the very core even if they don't intend it most people think oh just let it fly we'll have peace as long as we pretend we have peace we're talking about shooting for real peace in the church real peace comes from very clear defined doctrine the only possibility of speaking the same thing being of one mind no other possibility of peace now you can have a false peace no doubt about it but anybody that thinks a latitudinarian or the wide open thing will bring peace, I say mark that man and be very careful of it. Okay? And I believe the scripture clearly teaches it here. Now, does anybody disagree, Mark? Okay, explain explain how you disagree.
And so, again, I think you're agreeing with us. Uh, you may be seeing it in a different way, but our, our unity, the whole point, bottom line, is the unity is in the speaking of the same thing, speaking the truth. To say we can speak different things, or the, I would call it common stupidity, let's agree to disagree instead of getting into it. Let's, let's pretend that we uh, don't have any differences here. Confessional use is to hold the truth. 
okay? I should probably uh, uh, summarize uh, the last part. If we seek the bond of peace, the bond of the Spirit, the real true peace, we must be orthodox, which means right teaching. Right teaching with the ages of the past. Okay, true peace comes from right teaching. Secondly, holding fast the truth. Uh, Linda, 2 Timothy 1.13. Brian, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Dave, 2 Timothy 3.14-17. Paul has some very definite teachings for Timothy here about holding the truth. So let's start with 2 Timothy 1.13. Hold fast the sound words that thou hast heard of me, in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Okay. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2. And as soon as that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Alright. Second Timothy 3.14-17. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is possible for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Okay that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. How do we ensure our sanctification? How do we ensure it? Paul gives us three times over, clearly. He says, hold fast the forms of sound words. Hold fast. How do you hold fast the form? What is form? How do you hold it? Exactly. That's what I understand to be the holding fast form. It's being obedient to what? The truth, okay? The form of sound words. Have we put our truth, our sound words into a form? Right? Have we done that? Well, we haven't, but the, the assembly of divines did. We put it into a form, and now we have something we can hold fast on to, which is critical to being thoroughly furnished unto good works. Okay? So here we have what I consider the biggest protest. If nothing else gets remembered tonight, this one, 2 Timothy 1.13, hold fast the form of sound word. This is why we do it. Okay? Main protest. Yeah. You just said, Okay, I would interpret Exodus 24.3. Let's just turn to that mark if you could read that. Will you scripture to interpret scripture? The question I would be asking here is, would you say, is this holding fast the form of sound words? Exodus 24.3. Okay, is that what it means to hold fast? Okay, definitely that's what it means. 
It's to make covenant with God. That's what your confession of faith is, is covenant with God. Now, next question is, do we have, obviously the elders have a personal vow involved, a personal responsibility. We've vowed to uphold this confession of faith as the truth. Do you think that as individuals, non-elders, you have that same responsibility? You have just as much on your shoulders as we do, although we don't require vows for the sake of people who are newly converted and growing. We expect you to be in conformity with it, but uh, some people will only know very little of it, some people will know more. But the question is, do you have the responsibility to get as far into it as possible? The scriptures say, by our words we will be justified, and by our words we will be condemned. And uh, in word, we have all agreed to all the confession of faith. So clearly we're held accountable by that. Okay. Uh, Jenny, First uh, John 4, 2 and 3. Linda, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Lyndon, First Timothy 6, 12 and 13. Um, so that's, uh, you want, did you want to read this? Do you, you mind? Yeah or no? Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Matthew ten thirty two. I I don't mind including you at all. I'm glad that you're here. I, I just uh, I don't. If you're some people are shy about reading scripture publicly, if that's the case. Just say so. Okay. So let's start with First John four two and three. Okay, uh, is, is the fact that Jesus is God in our confession? Obviously. Is that fairly important according to Scripture? Obviously, okay. No, but that's the fact that the correct time that he is the Yeah. And so uh, a lot of our confession is taken uh, directly from the Scripture. Uh, even the early creeds, for example, where do the Apostles' Creed come from? I believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Right directly from Matthew 28. Baptizing in the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Ghost. That's where they got it from. Uh, there's a number, we don't have time to go into it, but there's a list of Bible confession of faith. Ones where there are actually confession of faith written right in the Bible. Okay, next one was uh, Romans. Was it Romans 10, 9 and 10? Okay, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Uh, the doctrine of resurrection in the previous verse to believe that Jesus Christ has been raised uh, unto salvation. You must believe it. You must make confession of it. It's not just for elders for every single individual in the church. And so the question here that we're trying to establish is ought you to take your confession and make it your personal confession before God the Father? Yes. Every individual is required to do it to the utmost of their own ability. If you can't understand it all the way, seek help to try to make it full of a confession. If you can. Yes. Next one, 1 Timothy 6, 12 and 13. Thank you, by the faith, 
lay hold on eternal life, whereas it are false and have professed a distance to perfection from any witnesses, I can be charged in the sight of God, and at all things, for Christ Jesus is the co-founded Father, with his perfect perfection. Okay, the scripture teaches us to be imitators of Christ. Jesus was the example of a good witness. He was the example of a good confession of faith. We are to imitate him in like manner. To be just as bold with our confession of faith, ready to die for our confession of faith, most importantly, just as steadfast in holding on to it. Yeah. Can I read two verses? Yeah. The reason I want to read it is I think we've already passed five points where they're relevant. I want to include it before we've gone further away. That was Matthew 15, verse 9. Uh, where Jesus says, But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. Okay. In the other words, First Timothy 4 1. Now the Spirit teaches expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving to the different spirits and doctrines of devils. And so in the first instance, you have people rejecting the doctrine of God and instead following the doctrine of men. In the second instance, uh, rejecting the doctrine of God following the doctrine of devils and producing spirits. So then it becomes a question not of whether we should be doctrinal, but rather whose doctrines will we follow. It's impossible to be non-doctrinal. Very good argument when you're dealing with the world. That's what Bonson thought the whole conference on. Okay, uh, Matthew 10, 32. <laughs> Let's move on because 
we're going just a little bit slower than I thought. I'm not sure how much time we've used up here, but I want to have a prayer meeting, uh, and so I don't want to tie up too much time. Uh, let's go again then uh, back to orthodoxy. Orthodoxy agrees with the faithful teaching from the past. Is it reasonable to say that God would require the same confession of truth from all of his children throughout history? Should there be continuity of confession, this positive confession that we're talking about? Somebody uh, who's next. Linda, um, Jude chapter 3. Or Jude chapter 3, verse 3. Sorry. Wait for Revelation. Okay. Obviously, all the things, right? The same one, the one faith, the one faith, not the Old Testament faith versus the New Testament faith. The one faith delivered to all the saints in the one church. Okay, to contend earnestly, we have to tie ourselves together with this one faith in the one church. Okay, so orthodoxy is tying ourselves together by confession, by positive statement of what we believe, just the same as they did in the past just the same as we're commanded to do here, to contend earnestly for this very same faith. Okay. Where's that scripture con uh, continuing the doctrine that thou shalt save thyself and both thyself and them that hear thee? I wouldn't be able to place the verse exactly. Somebody could take a look for that. Uh, try 2 Timothy 2.15. I had that earlier. I skipped over it due to time. Uh, I just read it. Don't matter. Well, some people say doctrine doesn't matter. That's just perfect. Okay, well, Second Timothy two fifteen will hit the same idea. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Very common scripture. Yeah. Right. Uh, saying study hard, make a positive confession. Four sixteen. Okay. That one's perfect. It talks about saving yourself. Go ahead, Brian. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Like it's talking about obedience and doctrine. And like what you were saying before, you can't obey what you don't. That's exactly. You don't know. And so that's what we're going to look at in the confession. Precisely what is it we're supposed to be believing and obeying. That's what we're going into right now. Uh, we've learned, we've learned that a confession is used for teaching the truth. We've, used, we've learned that a confession is very important for holding the truth, making individual positive confessions. Okay, obviously that individual positive confession is the basis of our peace. It ties our church together with real unity, speaking the same thing, one mind about the one faith. 
now we move on to a confession is very important for using for witnessing and protesting in behalf of the truth. Uh, where are we? Uh, Dave, uh, we've read Jude 3 and 4, contend earnestly for the faith. Uh, John 1837, you take that one. Mark, Exodus 2016. And Ginny, uh, Matthew 5, uh, 13 through 15. The confession is to be used for witnessing uh, both within and without, both uh, within the truth, church for unity, but also to the to the world at large. What was Mark's reference? Uh, Exodus twenty sixteen. Uh, let's start with John eighteen thirty seven. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. Before this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Okay. Before this cause came I into the world. I, I read the most fascinating chapter by Warfield the other day of Jesus, all of his sentences in the Bible that says, For this purpose I came, for this purpose I was sent. Was a analysis of every time he said he had a reason for coming. Yeah, this was a big one. I came to witness. I came to reveal the truth to you. Okay? We are called to be imitators of Christ in Philippians in the same way we are called with that calling to reveal the truth to others. Evangelism isn't an option. It's absolutely necessary. Now, the way in which it's done varies according to your station in life. Uh, mothers evangelize your children especially at your great mission field. Uh, evangelizing your workplace by showing up on time and being diligent. Uh, evangelize by all forms of obedience to God's law in as much as you are capable. That's the strongest evangelization. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh right. well, I thought you were going to say something. All right, echo. Well, I could if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never lost for words, you know. <laughs> Exodus 20, verse 16. Fairly straightforward. Now, uh, but when you take some time with your family to look at that one, sin's forbidden, of, and sin uh, commanded, sin commanded, duty commanded. The idea, the idea now is a half truth bearing through witness. How do you mean? Oh, okay, okay. Now the idea. <laughs> okay, now the the idea is when you make a confession of faith before the world, when you wit witness for your master, is it enough just to go halfway? Is it enough to say we just believe this little minimalistic thing here so as not to offend anybody? We're not going to tell you that we have a set of rules back here in a closed back door. If you break one of those, you're going to find out about it the hard way. Right? We're not going to come right out and be honest. We're not going to bear witness properly to our neighbors by being forthright and honest and open about what we believe. Instead, we'll just give you a little pamphlet and have the rules closed way back here. We want to be the opposite of that. We want to bear the witness clearly, forcefully, in a, a very defined way. If somebody wants to attack us, let them attack our definition. That way, 
we have a sure and strong defense. We say we stand united here. So if you want to attack, attack here. It makes you very strong when you stand that way. Yeah. Number two, philosophy of language or the use of language. Language is a difficult vehicle to express some of these spiritual truths. Uh, we, we read of how, even in some of our translations, how difficult it is to understand what God is trying to communicate to us. very same problem occurs in the confession when men try to communicate what we agree on. That's why we have to go in and start saying, well, what do we think they meant by this phrase? Okay, so there are some limitations, and we're going to have to work with them. Those two are the two most critical. I say that simply that people don't start running around saying our, uh, our confession is infallible, lifting it up to the level of inspiration. That is heresy. I think it's important when we talk to people who are non-confessional that we make them aware that we hold these distinctions as well, because... Uh, well, the Catholic Church, for example, does not need to do the church leaders are their standards as being infallible and being the very word of God placed alongside the church. And I think a lot of people that are against professionalism quite falsely think that we too would hold it up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, those, those are some things that get argued against people holding confessions. That's one of the major objections. Um, Also, 
we're not saying that, though. That's the opposite of what we're saying. Uh, that's true, but it very Oh, sure, and to be clear about it uh, in every sense, this is determined by truth. The confession is just a statement of our agreement of what this has determined. The, the confession of faith doesn't interpret the Bible for us. The Bible interprets the Bible. Right? Scripture with Scripture. Uh, uh, you use exegetical theology, systematic theology, all of the different sciences that you can apply. Most importantly, the Spirit of God is the teacher. Okay, so the, we, don't, we don't join the book like the Watchtower Society. All we say is this book over here is simply a statement of what this book teaches. Although it's a good warning to say, uh, watch out when you're speaking about it, because it's a conclusion that can easily be jumped to. Uh, one of the things that is first discussed in the confession of faith is the first theory of scripture, and the fact that it is understandable by all, and that we don't need to go through the medium of the priesthood or something like that in order to understand the word of God. It says in chapter 1, section 7, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yes, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some places of scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in the due sense of the ordinary use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. But the first thing discussed in the confession of faith, they say, yes, you can understand and you don't need to go to some secret knowledge or a priesthood right. or Okay. So, uh, to sum this all up, uh, what we're going to, uh, the one scripture I want people to think of, I guess, other than this whole study, is hold fast to one sound word. Second Timothy, uh, 1.13, I believe. Second Timothy 1.13, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, to take that form and to hold on to it tight. Um, to make specific, clear doctrinal statements about your faith is right. God wants that from you. He wants you to know what you believe as much as he wants you to do what you believe. Orthodoxy is right teaching, linked to the past, put in systematic, clear statements. The building up of the church and the pulling down of errors for the building up of your families, for the pulling down of heretics and false ministers, for the building up of your elders, and for the building up of one another that we can have real peace and real unity. Now, it allows us to teach the truth, to hold the truth, and to guard the truth. We're God's appointed guardians for this. We have to be clear about how we're guarding it. Teach. Teaching the truth, holding the truth, and witnessing for the truth. Okay? Uh, so when somebody attacks you for having a confession, I hope that this helps you to defend yourself a little bit more clearly. Go to your Bibles. The Bibles give you every indication that a confession is totally legitimate. Matter of fact, in my estimation, uh, if I take the practice of the church throughout history, a confession right from the Bible, the word go, there have been confessions throughout history right from the word go. They saw the need for it to defend the truth, to define the truth. As heretics came out the church, they said, no, this is what we believe. Wrote it down. Okay? Well, that's basically it. Does anybody have any questions, comments? Well, comments. That even though we have the scriptures, 
which should be sufficient of themselves. And even though we have all these confessions, still doesn't end uh, the fact that uh, there's manifold men that will interpret things to suit their own ways and their own needs. I mean, you know, after coming out of BP and realizing that they supposedly ascribed to the confession and some of the stuff that went on there, it's just, uh, the truth is the only peace exists that God grants, I think, is the truth. Ultimately, that's correct. Well, uh, although I do believe that this peace that's talked about in the unity of the Spirit of God, we all have the Spirit of God. We can find this peace by working hard together to study what this thing means, what, uh, not only what the confession is saying, but more importantly, is that really what the Bible is saying? Has the confession stated it accurately? If we can sit down here, I mean, if it's possible that every second week we can all get together and do this, it may take us a couple of years uh, to get through the confession, maybe longer. But we should enter a state of good friendship and good peace because by that time we're going to know what each other's beliefs. Everybody gets a chance to speak up and say what you believe about these things. This is just a preamble. Uh, when we get to the actual sentences of the Confession of Faith, it should get very interesting. None of these so-called controversial or hot topics get bypassed. The Confession will reach into all of them. And so, and that's good. Our church should be talking about these things with the Bibles open uh, in the spirit of truth. Uh, we don't have to get into heated battles. We've got to get looking at it with open Bibles and good definition. All right? With that, uh, let's close. In Father, we truly give thanks for the many graces that you give to us, for your mercy to us, for the truth of your word. We ask that you would settle this truth deep in our minds and deep in our hearts, that we might learn to bless you through it, to glorify your name, to give you your due honor. And now bless us in our prayer meeting, cause us to be wise in the things that we would pray for, cause us to know your will. In Jesus' name we pray. In conjunction with the subject matter, given on the uh, tape that you've just listened to, we would suggest that you obtain and read the following books. First, The History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines by William Hetherington, published by Stillwater's Revival Books. Second, Doctrinal Integrity, The Utility and Importance of Creeds and Confessions and Our Adherence to Our Doctrinal Standards by Samuel Miller, published by Presbyterian Heritage Publications. And third, The Harmony of Protestant Confessions, edited by Peter Hall, published by Stillwater's Revival Books. All these books can be obtained from Stillwater's Revival Books Free newsletter and a complimentary copy of our large discount mail order Christian book catalog specializing in Reformation resources, contact Stillwater's Revival Books. On the internet, we are at www.swrb.com. By email, we're at swrb at swrb.com. Our mailing address is 4710. Dash 37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T-6L-3-T-5, by phone, 403-450-3730. After February of 1999, our area code will change. We can be reached by phone at 780 450 3730. 
And keep in mind that William Hetherington, commenting on the Solemn League and Covenant, the epitome of Second Reformation attainments, in his History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines, 1856 edition, page 134, writes, No man who is able to understand its nature and to feel and appreciate its spirit and aim will deny it to be the wisest, the sublimest, and the most sacred document ever framed by uninspired men.